0: what brings a community together shared insights shared conversations welcome to open door by cox communities tackling the big questions on the minds of smart
1: community business leaders
2: Welcome back to Open Door by Cox Communities, where we're providing information for you to consider when making decisions for your multifamily communities. Discover the latest trends and technologies that are making some multifamily business owners stand out. I'm your host, Bess Friedman, CEO of Brown Harris Stevens. Today, we're discussing what builders look for when searching for land and making site selections. And I'm very pleased to be joined for the conversation by Clay Richardson, the Managing Director at Wood Partners, and Corey Somerville, the VP of Construction for Arizona, California, and Nevada at Cox Communications. Well, welcome, Corey and Clay. Nice to have you here. and. Before we get into the do's and don'ts of site selection, I would love it if you would each introduce yourselves. I'm gonna go with you, Clay, could you just tell the audience a little bit about you and what
0: you do? Sure, happy to. So I'm a managing director at Wood Partners. We're a national multifamily developer. We have something like a little less than 20 offices across the United States. And our office here covers Arizona, Nevada. Personally, I've lived in the Phoenix metro area for uh, a number of years. I moved here in 1989. Uh, I have a master's in real estate development from Arizona State. And uh, I guess I should add that the word "developer" is often used sometimes misunderstood. So quick description of what I do is that I, along with our local team, we oversee the life cycle of a multifamily project, which includes identifying the land, entitling it, the local regulations, designing it, instructing it and then filling it up with residents. So that whole process is what we manage as
2: a firm. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, developer, people don't really understand what's involved with it, but I think that I'm glad that you set the table there. And Corey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure, thanks. Corey Somerville with Cox Communications. I'm the vice president for the West region that consists of Idaho, Nevada, California, and Arizona. Been with the company for about 24 years. all the way from front line to this position. So I've seen a couple things in the day and we pretty much have everything from commercial business to carrier business, to residential business, to relocates working with developers is a big part of our business today. So Clay and I support each other in developing and getting services to residents. So live in the Valley, just like Clay been here since 1986. So yep. Uh, nice and hot for us this summer already.
2: Okay, well, let's get into the subject at hand. When it comes to site selection, there are hundreds of things that any developer must be aware of. And Clay, what do you think are some of the top items on your checklist?
0: You know, it's kind of an ever-evolving thing as the markets change, but really it all starts with the municipality. In most growing cities across the United States, there's no appropriately in zoned or entitled land for multifamily anymore. So the ultimate decision is in the city council's hands to approve, make a site work. So you really have to start there and assess that. But we also look into a site size, its physical dimensions, subsurface characteristics, environmental conditions, and then probably another 50 different key characteristics that as we evaluate. One of the most complex of these factors is the access to practical availability of utilities. So, utilities are broken into two categories, wet and dry. Wet utilities include water and sewer, and dry utilities include power, gas, and low-voltage services. The latter being quite complex, which is why we seek to work with experienced partners like Hawks. Great.
2: Uh, And Corey, From a provider's perspective, what are some of the biggest red flags for you when evaluating a client's site selection?
1: A lot goes into the location, as Clay indicated. So where that development's going to go in and the surrounding land owners around it. So, for example, it may fall in a city of Buckeye, right, or a town of Buckeye, but it may be surrounded by state land. That's going to create a very complex situation for us to feed that development, right? So land ownership, permitting jurisdictions, as Clay indicated as well, there may be several that you're going to have to cross to get to the development and the existing infrastructure facilities that are already out there, meaning what pathways, where is power coming from? Where is gas coming from? Those are all things that are critical to our exploration of service.
2: You're both, as you said, based in the west and southwest of the country. Are there any considerations that are specific to those regions that developers need to be aware of that might not be as big an issue in other parts of the country?
0: And the obvious one is water, right? Southwestern United States, it's largely a desert. Um, So we get the question about approval rights daily. We see that with some of these pictures you see on national media about the reservoirs being down at historically low levels. So I have some data points on that, that I find particularly interesting. In fact, my favorite fact right now is that the Metro Phoenix area had a total population of around 200,000 people in the 1950s, right? So relatively small community we're at 5 million now, so, you know, just rough factors, right? A massive, massive increase. Here's the key takeaway, though. In the last 60 years or so, our water demand has gone down. Let that sink in for a minute. It's gone down. Now, how could that possibly be true, where you have a community of 200,000 people, and then now you have a community of 5 million, your water's gone down? The way that that happens is that uh, we were largely in agrarian use in the 1950s. So, Agrarian uses, growing cotton, growing food is a far more intense water demand than housing. And so once we have that conversation with whoever is having the concern, it quickly goes to the facts rather than worried about the source of water going forward.
2: Another issue that can be overlooked, and to be honest, is not very glamorous, and we touched on this, but I know it's important, is the issue of sewer capacity. why is this so important to evaluate before beginning any new project?
0: If one takes a moment to consider the sheer complexity of the city, and many people don't, it's really astonishing, right? To provide all the services we take for granted, such as clean water, modern plumbing, transportation, reliable access to power, phones, internet access, et cetera, et cetera. There's a couple of dozen utility providers and partners that need to work in concert for this to be a reliable infrastructure. Modern cities work seamlessly in this regard, and it takes decades of planning and people who are very, very deeply entrenched in their expertise. When we're looking at a city like Phoenix that we're talking about going from 200,000 to 5 million, there's a tremendous demand that needs to take decades to provide for. And then underneath our roads is this complex network of all of these utilities working together. Corey has far more expertise in this than I ever will, but one of these utilities specifically is sewer demand. And as housing comes along, Maricopa County is where Phoenix Metro is within. is the fastest growing county in the United States the last few decades. So planning for that growth is a monumental task. And with housing, you have sewer demand that comes online. So finding out what to do with that sewer, how to purify it, how to recycle it, how to use that takes a dozen agencies to work through. And we can see that today. A great example
1: is kind of in North Phoenix where we have the TSMC plant going in. I think there's adequate planning for that sewer system and water system for that plant, but outside of that plant, the services are very strained from a support residential, multi-dwelling kind of infrastructure. So they're having to harden those and reinforce those readily right now to support that.
2: Well, Corey, how can a developer determine if the site that they are selecting will be able to handle the the infrastructure necessary for the, you know, what all the technology needs that they're gonna have for that project? How can you square that?
1: That's a great question. It's developed through partnership and communication. We have a lot of developers that like to go off on the North 40 and and plan their own things and do their own things and find really cheap land and all of a sudden they're they find out that they cannot have services to their development, right? Well, that was there's a reason why maybe the land was so cheap or there was some red flags along the way. So, working with And developing partnerships and and putting in those can we serves and having those established relationships goes a long way in this also understanding or having an expert on your team that's dealt in telecommunications before helps i can tell you there's been many developments where people have purchased land and started developing and the city is requiring an aerial to underground conversion for that project and come to find out, it's much cheaper to underground the power than it actually is the telecommunications up in the air because there may be backbone fiber and coax links in the air that will take a lot of time and a lot of money to successfully underground those. And that that's not something really the developer has much say in at times when the city is requiring that.
2: As with any project, due diligence is so important. And Clay, I would love for you to take a moment to talk a little bit about the sheer mind-boggling complexity that can go into any site selection and why, in some ways, you look at yourself as a risk manager trying to solve problems before they arise.
0: One of the sayings we have within our shop is that we are making tacos. So it's a little bit more complex than that. The sheer complexity is mind-boggling exactly as you said that. So when approaching a site, we need to have a fundamental understanding of how the infrastructure works and how they work together. Many of these problems are solvable, but the second we find an unsolvable problem, we have to back out. No matter what money we've spent on the project, if we found an unsolvable problem, Knowing when that happens, it's the definition of insanity, right? You can't expect to have that to change.
2: You just cite an example of when that's happened, like something like where you have to back out, where things are like, nope, can't do it.
0: Sure. There was a site that we were working on recently that had a cell phone tower on it. Okay. So it was in the middle of the site. The seller had uh, the cell phone tower. Somebody came by and said, hey, we'd like to put a cell phone tower on. If they're making a monthly income, why not? Right. It was an undeveloped site. And we told them that we would seek to find an agreement with the cell phone tower operator to relocate it on our sites. But ultimately, what we needed to have is that cell phone operator, that cell phone tower needed to be down for a very short period of time, which they were not willing to do. So the moment we found that out, is there was relocation requirements, we knew that it wasn't a viable project. So then we moved on. But there's Hundreds of situations and where that can occur. I, I mean, another one would be interesting to talk about was there was a site that we were seeking to abandon a street in a municipality and that street, the complete political will for this street to be abandoned, it wasn't being used by the community. And as we incorporated into our site plan, one of the city staffers was reviewing the history of this site and the right of way. And as we're looking into the right-of-way, we're going back more than 100 years. The way it was dedicated to the city was incorrect 100 years ago. So it was put in limbo, and therefore the city wasn't comfortable in dedicating it back to the prior owners, which was who we were purchasing it from. And therefore the site didn't move forward. So there are thousands of reasons why, unfortunately, sites don't work, and there's only one way that they do work.
2: Got it. Very helpful. Corey, at times some developers may fail to conduct due diligence when evaluating a site, and that can lead to major problems down the road. Are there any examples that you've witnessed throughout your career that show the cost for developers when it comes to not being thorough enough in their review?
1: Just like Clay, there's hundreds and hundreds of these. We call it sticker shock. And as we know, society today is more dependent upon telecommunications than ever before. So they almost view it as just as critical as power, right? So when we have to relocate, the amount of uh, fiber and cable that's in the air is, is truly the biggest asset we possess, right? So. Safeguarding that and doing everything we can to ensure reliability is at the forefront of our our, of our mindset. So when developers fail to plan correctly for that, it can lead to lengthy disputes. It, it can lead to, uh, you know, uh, refusal to get COI, it can end up with uh, unsightly polls uh, misplaced or placed in developments that uh, don't look aesthetically pleasing. But ultimately, and we do use this, we don't like to do this, but we do have the trump card being, unless you start to pay for the relocation, we will not move forward with our relocation activities, right? So, unfortunately, that card is used more often than it should be, but when working with developers, especially developers such as Clay, they they understand this very, very upfront in the process, and the planning begins right away. So. When you're working with those kind of developers in the commercial and residential piece, it makes it much easier and much more pleasing for the outcome for all parties involved.
2: Right, because you're looking out for their best interest. The you know, I always say our most valuable resource is time, and you don't want to waste your time on something that's going to go nowhere.
1: Exactly, and most likely we'll be feeding the development that's being you know built. So. We both have a vested interest in successfully relocating and providing service, even for construction trailers, elevator lines, all those other things that may come up early in the process.
2: Unfortunately, when it comes to any new project, especially those large ones, the threat of legal action is always present. Uh, It's a tough question, but what are some of the ways that both of you try to avoid this? I mean, I don't know if you can answer this, but if you can, I'd love to hear it.
0: So the best defense against legal action is an experienced team and that's really everyone involved. So that's an experienced developer, an experienced civil engineer actually is quite important, architect, and then we get into the lawyers which are a couple of categories which should be land use counsel and transaction counsel. So that's where we're reading the tea leaves on that. And then also working with all of our utility partners to understand the issues up front and I'm sure I'll throw Corey a softball here but he commonly sees issues where someone is on we'll call it the five yard line to use it overused expression the developer thinks they're on the five yard line to get something done and one call to Corey and his team and he's like boys you know you got a 35 yard penalty you're back on the 40 yard line you got a long way to go those are bad days and
1: I can guarantee I'll usually have a couple depositions a year where, I unfortunately, I have to go in and explain why a developer promised service to residents and they didn't get Cox services. So that usually happens, I can count on it, like Christmas and Easter, right? A couple times a year this will happen. And it's usually because... Lack of coordination, lack of experience, overpromising, not understanding the ins and outs or the franchises within the state, things like that. Developers have misstepped over the course of developing their their property.
2: Well, along with legal action, usually comes the NIMBY crowd, or we call it NIMBYism, but NIMBY standing for Not in My Backyard people. talk to us a little bit about the challenges that these groups of people create for developers.
0: 10 years ago, I couldn't even spell NIMBY. Now it completely dominates my day. So, you know, we have a national problem for housing. We believe housing is a fundamental right of all Americans. And unfortunately, millions don't have access to attainable housing. The only way that we solve this is to apply more housing. It's just that simple. And this crowd's often made up of people who've owned their homes for many years. In many cases, they don't have a mortgage on their home. And when you're in that situation, you don't want to be interacting with more housing, you don't want to be interacting with more density housing, and generally predisposed to not want change. This NIMBY crowd has some common concerns, the top three really being increased crime, increased traffic, and in decreased home value. And it's the triumvirate. So breaking those down because they're easily discussed. The increased crime, there's many reports debunking this claim, uh, so I don't need to go too long into this, but one thing to point out is that it's much harder to rent an apartment, say, because background checks are required. And if you have a felony, you can't live there, right? So there's a very detailed background check. Your application's rejected. However, Your neighbor's home, which may or may not be up for rent, you don't know, don't have those national standards. So you're more likely having a risk within your own community than you would with the brand new apartment complex next door. Increased traffic is also a common concern. I like to tell people that one large TGI Fridays creates more traffic than an entire apartment project. Another one's a grocery store. We don't have NIMBYs ever say, ah, keep those grocery stores away from me. But a Trader Joe's, to pick one, creates a massive amount of traffic compared to an apartment complex. So never seen picket signs out, no more Trader Joe's, you know. So my wife would love that if we had a Trader Joe's within walking distance. The last one is home value reduction, There's plenty of well-researched documents that show that increased housing supply, increased density in a surrounding neighborhood, increases value on their homes. So that's a refrain that can easily be debunked, but I'll say that I put my money where my mouth is. And I have a project that is currently in development. It's a five minute walk from my house. And it was a multiple year battle to get this project off the ground. And I fiercely believe in attainable housing. And, you know, I've lived in this home for many years in this community for a de- two decades, and I'm happily putting one of my projects within walking distance. Um, it's an interesting discussion that I haven't, didn't really expect to have. I have a few kids that are in their early teens and my oldest daughter asked me the other day, she said, where am I going to live? how can I afford to live in my community? And it kind of hit home for me wow. because she's 15 and she's asking that because she's hearing her older friends, she's talking to people above her and you know, I interact, I'm in a community with people, regularly engaged with people in their early 20s and they're just saying, we can't live here. We have friends that we've known for decades that are moving to Nebraska or Ohio or Oklahoma or these places where it's more affordable to live and they just say, we just can't do it anymore. And it's an absolute shame. So something that gets me up in the morning is to provide housing for our community.
2: Yeah, it's such a good point. I think the, the nimbyism is it's a tough one, you know, because like you said, people are set in their ways and they don't want to change. And But it is important. Housing, everybody needs a roof over their head. We need that supply. So not an easy question or a topic to tackle. And there are also people who question the need for just new development arguing that there isn't enough demand for all the new projects that are being started. I mean, throughout the country, what do you say to these people and how does getting ahead of growth projections play into all of this?
0: We've worked on a couple of dozen projects over the last 10 years in our area, which is Arizona, Nevada. And every single project we've opened has leased up faster with residents than we projected every single time and there's a common concern that high-density housing there's too much of it at every corner and what's going on and really the demographics have shifted where people want to live that mobile lifestyle so we just this last month there's tremendous concern regarding the economy and a potentially big recession coming up but i was looking at my reports and one of our projects leased 58 units in one month so that's essentially 2 a day and we typically like to target 20 20 a month so we're two and a half times over capacity of what we projected and that's just last month so the demand is off the charts if you look at it there's something like 60 70 80,000 people moving to the some of these metros particularly phoenix right now so that works out to be what 2 300 people a day so where are they all going to live um, that's the question. So it's, there's a simple answer is that if you look across all of the apartments, all of the for rent, all of the for sale stuff, occupancies are at all time highs. And unfortunately, affordability is at modern day lows. It's a, it's a horrible combination.
2: That's the hard part. We have this in New York City, similar in the sense that occupancies are at these highs, like 98%. And then affordability, I mean, it's just crazy. The numbers are through the roof. And so there's a lot of pressure for people right now.
1: It's very strange because we have yet to see any kind of slowdown on our end too. In fact, we only see home builders accelerating to compete with the resale market a little bit now. So You would think inflation, interest rates, fuel, all those things would contribute. But in the West, at least as of now, knocking on every piece of wood around me, we have not seen those slowdowns as many people thought with recessionary concerns or inflation concerns.
2: Yeah, there's been this just talk of recession, recession, and it seems like the economy has been so resilient. It's like, nope. Not happening, we're still fighting, but it's definitely an interesting time. What about the bureaucratic stuff for developers? Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, how do you deal with those challenges and how has that changed over the last 10 years? I mean, the red tape stuff is always a challenge, I think, to this process.
0: If we wish to build a project completely absent of any type of bureaucratic process in a perfect world, from identifying site to opening doors to people, residents to live in, is probably 18 months. Now, inside of bureaucratic processes in the West, areas like Denver, Phoenix, Las Vegas, Boise, kind of the West Mountain West, that process is not 18 months, it's five to seven years. And then as you head out to the West Coast, up the Pacific Northwest, that's even elongated beyond that, that you're looking at 6 to 9, 6 to 10, or perhaps never with projects. So the National Association of Home Builders put out an interesting article that stated 40% of the cost of housing is directly related to regulatory processes and approvals. So there is value. We want to make sure our buildings are safe, right? We want to make sure that everything's appropriate. We're not trying to kill the spotted underground burrowing owl, right? We don't want to do that. But beyond that, the supply is severely restrained by these processes and the final product in many cases is not meaningfully improved. Funny you mentioned the burrowing owl, Clay. I I, I ran into that. Yeah, it is wild. I, to these processes, again, we need to have safe and affordable housing. Looking at my data before this talk, uh, in the last 10 years, the cost of our projects have gone up 120%. And best, we see
1: this same thing on our side, providing communications that the red tape, the permitting, the timelines have only been lengthened. And part of it's due to where people are developing and there's more surrounding state land or federal land. And that plays into it, certainly. But the amount of inspection red tape permitting red lines back and forth has certainly played into that, creating painful, painful delays.
2: I think this discussion has been so insightful, and I would like to give each of you an opportunity just to leave the audience with whatever a final thought or or something, you know, anything that you want to share or press upon the audience before we sign off. So why don't I go to you, Clay, first, any last point you'd like to make?
0: yes and it's i think it's a common point anytime i have an opportunity to connect with an audience and that's the only way we solve our problems as a community is connecting as a community rolling up our sleeves and solving together and that's face-to-face communication with respect and the national housing crisis is real we have affordability at all-time lows in modern history in fact worse than any other time since post-World War II. And there are not simple answers. And working forward, sitting down, having coffee with people that you may not agree with is the way that we have to move forward. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book I found quite interesting called Talking to Strangers.
2: I read that.
0: Isn't it a great book? I mean, it's fascinating, right?
2: Oh, it's, I mean, he is, I love how he uh, observes things.
0: Yeah, so in just for purpose of the audience, the thing that I got out of it, and I'm curious if you got the same, was the notion that modern society is the first time in human history in which you're regularly interacting with strangers to do not share your background. And so that leads to miscommunication, it leads to problems, relational problems, and bad decisions. Connecting with strangers, talking to strangers is a relatively new phenomenon and it directly applies to our housing crisis.
2: It's so, I love that you made that point. It's such a good way to look at it and think about it. And it's a, such a good book. Everybody should read that. So, plug for Malcolm Gladwell. Corey, anything that you would like to say or leave the audience with before we sign off?
1: No, echoing a lot of play's sentiments and then uh, also, you know, probably throwing in a, a shameless plug for. Proper planning and communication in the developer community can go a long way. I know I've talked about that repeatedly, but having reliable telecom services is now every day part of almost every day everybody's life, right? So having that service at their doorstep 24-7, 365 is critical. And the more we can plan and work together to facilitate a better outcome works for us all. And Affordable housing is a problem for all of us, right? So, we have markets where it's tough for our employees to have affordable housing. So, we recognize and understand the demand more than ever for our labor force as well. So, we fully support how to be creative and how to solve this problem together as opposed to uh, opposing viewpoints.
2: Get a lot more done if everybody works together. I agree and communicate. So... you guys are great partners, and I have learned a lot from this discussion. I want to say thank you to both of you for joining us today. I want to say a big thank you to Clay and Corey for being on the show today and talking all about the do's and don'ts of site selection for builds. You can learn more about the amazing work being done by Wood Partners on their website, woodpartners.com. And if you enjoyed the show today, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. I'm Bess Friedman and this has been Open Door brought to you by Cox Community.